We are live. I am joined by Jeff Snyder of Alhambra Partners and Joseph Wang, Fed guy, former senior Fed trader. Jeff, Joseph, welcome to Forward Guidance Live. Pleasure to be here. And yeah, great to meet you, Jeff. Likewise. Uh, thanks, Jack, for the invitation. And uh, great to meet you, Joseph. Uh, looking forward to the discussion here. Um, I'm hearing, I just heard a little bit of echo. Well, so we'll hopefully, uh, that will, that'll be fine. Um, I'm really glad that we've got to get you two together because both of you are renowned for your analysis of central banks, plumbing, the, the monetary system, but you come at it from, from different angles. Um, I actually am, I am hearing an echo, so I'm going to look into that. Um, but how, how about I throw the first question, um, to, to you, Jeff, we were just talking before we went live is, the Russia-Ukraine is the crisis uh, with oil prices skyrocketing, stock markets tanking, likely, you know, its impact on inflation as well. Is that a gift to the Federal Reserve or is it a curse? Yeah, <laughs> that's a loaded question, right? <laughs> I think we were just, you know, mentioning briefly off air before we started that, you know, I think we have a little bit of, at least I have a little bit of sympathy. Joseph maybe has a little bit more for the plight that central bankers find themselves in. Because I think, and maybe everybody agrees with me, or a lot of people agree with me, that what the Fed, the position of the Fed that's in is they have enormous political pressure on them to basically, hey, you guys better start doing something about this inflation mess because it's going to, you know, we're going to have an electoral issue in November. At the same time, we have enormous potential economic weakness building. The higher oil prices go, the more potential demand destruction. And so, I mean, yeah, yeah, on the one hand, you could say maybe the Fed's been let off the hook a little bit because they could blame Russia, Ukraine for possible economic weakness. And maybe they don't go as hawkish as maybe as people were anticipating a couple months ago. But as I said to Joseph, I think they're damned if they're doing they're damned if they don't, because I think oil prices are going to go up. The economy's in bad shape either way. And so whether they hike rates or not, it may not actually matter. And they're going to get blamed either way for whatever happens. Joseph, what? Oh, actually, I think I know why. Okay, sorry about that. Um, Joseph, why? Uh, what do you think the the is it a gift or a curse to the Federal Reserve? Your take? No, I, I agree with Jeff. I think I think this Fed is in tough position. If I were Jay Powell, I would be rethinking. Maybe I don't want to be renominated. You know, maybe it's it's much better if I just ride off into the sunset. You know, when you think about this. Um, this Ukraine thing, it's a ginormous negative supply shock to the commodity sector, right? And it hurts economic conditions as well. If you're from the Fed's, from the Fed's perspective, what you care about is full employment and stable prices. What you're doing here is you're increasing inflation and you're also increasing unemployment, weakening the economy. So it's, it's hard to know what to do right now. Let's say you raise rates to tame inflation, then you're going to hurt your employment mandate a bit more. If you don't raise rates, then inflation is going to get even more out of control. So I think the Fed is in a really tough position right now. I think the market is pricing out some of the rate hikes, but still, I think a lot, most of them are still there. So that seems to be what the market is thinking. Mm. Joseph, I would say I go a little bit further than that. I think the market is reevaluating where the, how many rate hikes the Fed gets to and where they actually have to stop and whether or not they stop long before people have been anticipating. We look at the yield curve is flattened out to the point where the seven and 10 year are actually touching each other various days. In fact, the inverted intraday a couple of weeks ago, you know, the two ten spread is down to 20 some basis points, which is, you know, threatening that that really low level where you think eh, we're getting into some kind of recessionary potential. 
maybe not, you know, immediately, but maybe in the second half of this year or into next year. And that's, that just adds more fuel to the fire. And then you've got Euro dollar futures, which are upside down tremendously, which is basically the market saying, hey, the Fed's going to start hiking rates, but we're not really sure how far they're going to get and what's going to happen as they do so, because we're, at, you know, a significant chunk of the market is hedging against further rate hikes down the road. So the market is starting to get the sense, and it really, it's it's for going back to uh, October of last year, we're getting this skepticism building in about whether or not the Fed can actually hike rates as aggressively as had been stated beforehand. I, I agree with you, Jeff. So I, I noted that you posted this before. There, there seems to be, at least until very recently, just slight inversion in the euro dollar curve. It's moderated a bit. So that that's a pretty good indication that the that the market thinks that the rate hike cycle is going to be pretty shallow. If you look at what's what it is pricing in now against what was it it was pricing in before this rush to Ukraine, I think your terminal rate has gone down about 50 basis points. So that that I think is is as you mentioned, the market thinking the Fed probably is not willing or able to hike as much. For myself though, I don't really worry about let's say the twos, ten spreads. I look more about the short-term interest rate futures. I think of the longer dated yield curves, at least the post GFC in the post GFC world as more, I guess, more of an expression of policy rates of central bank policy throughout the world, rather than market conditions. In a sense, I think of it as, as being socialized. After all, if you look at what's happening throughout the world and global bond markets are all very tightly connected, then if you have, let's say, negative rates in Japan and Europe, you're going to have a lot of people from there just coming to the US buying longer dated treasuries, not because they think that, you know, growth and inflation are going to be uh, great or anything or low, but simply because it's better than what they can get at home. And of course you have um, quantitative easing, which I think distorts the market as well. But the short-term interest rate futures, I think is, is a bit cleaner than, than longer dated, though not perfect. Yeah, but you also have very close correlation between something like euro dollar futures and that longer term treasury spread. Go go back to 2018, for example. Euro dollar futures inverted in June of 2018 as the long term spread started to flatten out. And remember what happened at the end of 2018? We had actual inversion in the short and long end of the curve, which matched the explosion and the inversion in euro dollar futures. And it's not just that. I mean, you had swap spreads compressing all over again. So you had consistent signals across the marketplace regardless of whether the Fed was in the market or not, regardless of what foreigners were buying or what they weren't buying, that expressed skepticism about the Fed's inflation and growth narrative at that time in 2018. Remember, middle of 2018, everybody was convinced inflation was going to break out. Jay Powell was going to have to be aggressive. You have the flattening yield curve as well as euro dollar futures betting 2019 was not going to turn out that way. And of course, that's exactly how it happened, which was nothing more than a repeat of, say, the 2006 to 2007 period when Euro dollar futures inverted. The yield curve went uh, upside down. To, the spreads collapsed at the long end, too. So I think there's a consistent case where if you're ignoring the long term spreads because you think QE has muddied the waters of inflation and growth expectations, you got to look at the correlations here because they remain pretty tight. And also, you know, for the 2021 2022 case, the long term uh, long term yields have been falling since last March. So we're talking about yield curve flattening that's almost a year old, which predates the terminate or QE taper, predates the whole rate height cycle and everything else. So there's been a lot of skepticism involved in the marketplace going back that far, which suggests that we're just continuing along in that direction toward lower growth and inflation expectations. 
Well, if you look at where inflation is, you know, like six, seven percent, and where are yields, right? So you can't. It's hard to say that it, people who participate in this market are looking at growth and inflation. A lot of it really is just an expression of policy. But back to the whether or not euro dollars ha- are a good market, I think I think you're right that sometimes they do get it right, but a lot of times they get it wrong as well. If you think, let's say, what happened in the post GFC board for the basically the next ten years. The euro dollar market was always pricing in a Fed, say, terminal rate about three, four percent, and they were basically wrong for like a decade. So sometimes they get it right, and some, sometimes they don't. So they 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 are not necessarily as as like the be all and end all, but something to keep in mind for sure. Well, that, I mean, the euro dollar futures curve was essentially upward sloping, as it should have been. It was optimistic that maybe growth and inflation were going to come back and that interest rates had at least a plausible path back to not quite normal, but near normal up until around 2013, 2014. But then the euro dollar futures curve changed. So I wouldn't say the euro dollar futures was wrong. Euro dollar futures were essentially betting that maybe some, some things would go right enough that you know, the long run expectation was that we could get back at least better than uh, somewhere off the zero lower bound. But it's not so much taking those the curve literally as it is changes to the curve. So you have the upward sloping euro dollar futures curve throughout that decade, which was maybe it looked like it was the, the market betting on the Fed getting back toward normal. But as it changed during these various periods, like 2014, 2015, and again, 2017 and 2018, as it would flatten out, that's the signal that you really want to you want to hang your hat on because that was the curve saying something has changed. We were upward sloping. We were optimistic that there was a plausible path back to normalcy, but now we're not so sure. Something has changed materially where we're starting to hedge against whatever's going on in the short run. So I think the more important part of the euro dollar curve isn't necessarily taking it literally. There's a path back to a terminal rate of 4%, but how the curve shift changes through time. And that's really... You know, the 2018 example, as well as the current example, we have the curve flattening out and inverting. Whether or not the terminal rate was 2 or 3%, I think, you know, almost doesn't matter. It's that right now there's a tremendous sense of skepticism about the Fed's rate hikes and why they're hiking rates and what ultimately that will mean. And Jeff, think- you've, you, sorry, sorry, Joseph. Jeff, you've been skeptical about uh, how much the Fed would be able to hike. I want to hear your thinking about that. Joseph, you've kind of had the opposite view where, You've said, hey, you know, inflation's at seven and a half percent. Why are we still doing quantitative easing? Why is the Fed funds rate still at target rate of, of you know zero to twenty-five basis points? So, uh, Jeff, how about you shape your view uh, about why you think the Federal Reserve could not hike as much as people were thinking? And then, Joseph, I want to get uh, your view into there as well. Well, I think it starts with the idea of inflation itself. Why are the CPIs rising? I don't link them at all to quantitative easing because I don't think there's any evidence which you, why you should. Nor lower interest rates because, you know, we've seen historically speaking that low interest rates do not equate to economic growth or activities. Certainly don't, don't correlate very well with consumer prices. So I think, you know, consumer prices, the Fed got it right the first time when they said this is transitory. Now, I know it's March of 2022. We've been going through these CPIs up through the roof at 40-year highs for, for almost a year now. And people don't equate that to transitory, maybe in the, you know, as a, as a uh, sort of a starting position. But in macro terms, that is trans. I mean, that can still be temporary. And I think what happened with, with uh, consumer prices, especially in the United States, is you had federal government stimulus that shifted the demand curve to the right. At the same time, the supply curve was totally inelastic, which led to this essentially a price illusion 
where we believe the economy is in position of overheating. And I think, you know, Joseph, correct me if I'm wrong, with I think the Fed has changed its view. They still think last year was transitory supply shock factors, but now they're worried about, you know, consumers getting normalized to high CPI rates. They're worried about the unemployment rate at 3.9%. Maybe that contributes to inflationary pressures. So I think the Fed had it right the first time. And I think they should they should pay attention to the markets telling them they were wrong about the second part. So I, I agree with you, Jeff, actually. I don't really think quantitative easing is causing this inflation. I think it's pretty obvious, right? So you had massive quantitative easing for the past 10 years. You have massive quantitative easing in Japan as well quantitative easing, it doesn't have a very strong effect on inflation. What really drives inflation, in my view, and I agree with you, is fiscal spending. Fiscal spending, what you're basically doing is you're conjuring, you're printing treasuries to buy real goods and assets, right? So obviously that demand for goods and services is going to push up inflation. But I think, I never thought inflation was transitory and I continue to think we are structurally inflationary because that fiscal spending, it's not going away. If you look at what the um, the Treasury is forecasting, we're basically going to have trillion dollar deficits every year forever. And, yeah. <laughs> and listen, this is it's like an it's insane. And you know, this is based on current law. We're going to pass more spending. That's this is basically minimum trillion dollars a year. So eventually, we're going to have some free more free stuff. It's going to be multiple trillion dollars of dollars a year in the future. And that structural spending, that, that's going to drive inflation, not quantitative easing, out of control fiscal spending, I think, is what is what I think that inflation will be structural. Yeah, but, you know, the pushback against that is the Japanese case, because the Japanese did tremendous amounts of structural fiscal spending for a very, very long time in combination with zero interest rate policy, as well as the pioneering approach to quantitative easing is, I think we both agree that uh, that didn't really work very much. And yet that wasn't inflationary in Japan either. I know we can make distinctions about Japan versus the U.S., but certainly the way the bond market is behaving and the way certain financial markets are behaving, as well as economic growth is growth potential. You look at the CBOE's potential numbers. It looks a lot Japanese. So, you know, I think that, you know, what happened last year was the federal government got involved for various reasons. We can debate about whether it was whether it was warranted or not. But I think it had a temporary impact because that's what it does. And that those the the impact, the shift of the demand curve to the right has already started to, to transition to moving back to the left a little bit, which is uh, which will eventually ease inflationary pressure. So and I think the marketplace, you know, as, we, as you just said, Joseph, I think the market knows that fiscal deficits are going to be sky high for our lifetime. I mean, I hope not, but I mean, at least some long run range that. There's really, I mean, fiscal sanity is such a is such a you know 20th century notion at this point. Uh, it's it's amazing, but you know there is a case for it to be deflationary, not necessarily structurally inflationary. So I, I hear that argument about the changing fiscal impulse, basically. So we were doing let's say three trillion dollars of deficits last year, and this year we're going to do a bit less. I, I actually don't. To me, when we're already at supply limits, that doesn't really matter. So because we, we are basically already maxed out the supply capacity of, of the system. So anything incrementally we add is going to is going to be inflationary. So let's say if if, for example, if you're a factory and you have, you know, you're at half capacity and then you're at maximum capacity and then you get a thousand orders. OK, prices are going higher. If you're going to get another thousand, another 500 orders, it's less than a thousand. 
but it doesn't matter because you're already at capacity. So because you're at capacity, even though the incremental increase in fiscal stimulus isn't as large as it was before, you're still you're still kind of full. So I, I think that in my view that that still um, would be inflationary. But going back to the bond market, well, so no, I mean, just, I mean, before I think that's the crux of our disagreement here is that look, are we at fiscal? Are we at capacity? And I think you look at any number of statistics, like industrial production in the United States, as well as outside outside the rest of the world. You know, production levels barely got back to where they were in February 2020, which was already on a downturn going back to that 2018 episode we just talked about. So I would argue that the supply, there's a lot more supply potential available. And I think we're starting to see it, especially when you look at the inventory numbers lately. You know, all the goods that were ordered last year, anticipating supply and logistical problems have started to show up because that supply curve globally, you know, think about it in terms of aggregate terms that the supply curve has become relatively less inelastic. So I think there's more supply potential available at the same time the demand effects from last year are starting to wane and the, the potential for those two combined is lower prices. Maybe not, you know, not outright deflationary, but at least the deceleration in consumer prices. And again, I think that's really what these bond curves, low yields, low longer term yields are telling us since last year is that the potential for the temporary factors involved in what happened with the consumer prices last year to wear off, to, you know, diminish over time. And we're starting to see some of that. For me, when I look at su supply capacity, what I just look at is prices. When prices go higher, that tells me that supply is being maxed out. And when you look at wages, look at the price of anything, really, prices seem to be going higher. So I look at that as my indication for whether or not we're at supply constraints, but just philosoph philosophically, and this is my own view, and, and I know many, many very smart people like yourself think differently. I look at markets as just people buying and selling. Like if you look at, for example, Tesla, it, oh, okay, until recently, it just went up, right? Does that, does that mean um, Tesla, uh, Elon Musk is going to sell a thousand cars and basically take over the entire, oh, sorry, a billion cars and take over the entire auto industry? Does it mean they're going to be super profitable? I mean, I don't know. I, is that really what I should see when I look at the price of Tesla go over a thousand? But I think most people would just say that, you know, it's a lot of people buying. Maybe it's, let's say, option dealers hedging. It's just people buying and selling. It's not necessarily a, a fundamental story about the, what the market thinks, how profitable Tesla will be. And I take that same logic and I apply that to the bond market. For me, the bond market isn't any a special market. It's just in, like any other market. And I think before the GFC, you might have had more, I think, more economic input. But post GFC, there's just so much other stuff in it. Uh, for me, it, it just it feels hard to take that signal out because I we actually know who's in the market buying insights, right? Well, you have the Fed. Just yeah, the banks. Fed. No, that's banks, the Fed. banks, banks and the Fed. <laughs> Fed banks are buying trillions of it. Yes. Fed is buying, and you know what? China's buying, let's say uh, other sovereign funds are buying, you know, those people, they don't really care about um, growth and inflation. They don't care about making money, period. They just buy because, you know, this is a risk-free counterparty. I got to buy. I have no choice. So if you have a lot of people like that in the market, you naturally are not going to get a very clear signal. Yeah, but it, I think that yeah. we do have a clear signal. If you follow them closely, they correlate closely, and as well as, you know, I agree with you about the stock market in particular. There really is no fundamental anchor to share prices. It's a fiction we all tell ourselves. Oh, there's yep. earnings, there's cash flow. Nonsense. I mean, th those are just those are things that we tell ourselves to make ourselves believe that there's some kind of value to shares. 
But I don't think it's the same way about the bond market in particular, especially since it's correlated so closely to actual economic outcomes. So I do think there is a fundamental value. I think it's gotten lost in this idea that anything that's high priced must be in a bubble. Sometimes high prices actually are legitimate. And I think low bond yields, this demand for safety and liquidity, especially from the financial system, is telling us something very important about safety and liquidity. If safety and liquidity is in high demand, what does that mean systemically? And there's also, I mean, let's talk about repo collateral, for example. Whether or not uh, banks and financial institutions have a, a, want to express a view on growth of inflation, they have to pay for repo collateral. They have to pay whether it's rented, whether it's transformed, or whether they own it in their own inventory. And so if there's a, if there's a supply shortage of, or a scarcity of repo collateral, that's going to add to the price too. But it adds to the price in a very fundamental way because it's telling you something very important about the structural, monetary, therefore deflationary potential, maybe shortfall in the long run uh, long run condition for growth and inflation expectations. So, I, I you know I think there's a fundamental view expressed in the bond market, especially since it's such the it's the deepest, most sophisticated liquid market, regardless of whether the Fed's involved in it or not. Because even the Fed knows that it doesn't control interest rates. You look at any number of of Fed sponsored or academic studies about quantitative easing, and they can't come up with a link between QE buying. And interest rates, as Richard Fisher said in 2011, when they were baiting Operation Twist, why are we buying bonds that the market is already fleeing towards? Shouldn't we be buying bonds or assets that the market is fleeing away from? So I think that's a fundamental signal. If if I could could just jump in there. So, so, uh, Jeff, when you say, can the Federal Reserve control interest rates, which interest rates are you talking about? Are you talking about the two-year, the three-month, the five-year, the 10-year, the 30-year? Um, because I, I think I think it depends. You know, it, it does have a considerable yes. amount of control over the short end, right? Yeah, you would look at the two-year treasury, for example. That's highly influenced by short-run policy. In fact, it's that's really the basic. I mean, if you're going to own a two-year treasury, you're going to wonder what's the repo rate going to be in two years because I'm not going to own a two-year treasury if I can get a better repo rate down the road. But then you get around to the five, seven-year, the belly of the curve, really from seven years on out, and there's really at times not much influence at all, including the current age that we're in. The, t- the five and 10 year space, you know, past the seven year to 10 years along into the treasury, doesn't matter if the Fed's buying, if the Fed's not buying. Like now is a perfect example. We have we have uh, tapering and terminating quantitative easing, yet bond prices remain stubbornly high here. Yeah. So so uh, let me explain for the audience. When you buy a bond, you'd expect the yield to go down. So quantitative easing, you would expect bond yields to go down and quantitative tapering, you'd expect them to go up. But actually what happen- tends to happen is that bond yields tend to rise during quantitative easing and fall during periods of quantitative tightening. So, Joseph, how does that make sense? How does when the Federal Reserve goes in and plows hundreds of billions, sometimes trillions of dollars into the bond market, buying bonds, pushing the prices of bonds up, pushing the yields down, how come is it that yields rise? No, there's a there's a recent paper on this. Um, so I, I think it, it, uh, this kind of goes to just point. So, the people there, you know, a whole bunch of people do research on the effects of quantitative easing. And this paper does kind of meta study and it finds that people who work at central banks thinks quantitative easing has a big impact. And people who don't work at central banks, their research shows that it doesn't do anything. <laughs> so, um, That's and also, science, right, Joseph? That's <laughs> science. <laughs> and also, it, it has a supplement where it says that people who work at central banks who write papers that say quantitative easing does a big thing get promoted more frequently. So, it's, it's hilarious in that sense. But I think I think the important thing is to realize that a lot of things determine rates. It's not just um, what the Fed is doing. A lot of times, when the Fed is buying, for example, you know, bad things are happening. 
let's say March 2020, maybe everyone thinks the world's going to implode. So everyone flees to safety. Then the Fed starts buying, and then you know people realize the world is not going to end, and so you know yields go back higher. So there's that, there's that, there's there are these flight to safety other the other flows that matter as well. But fundamentally, though, the Fed owns about five and a half trillion dollars in treasuries. I mean, if you release that into the market, that has to have some impact on interest rates, right? Somebody has to absorb that. Or let's say that the U.S. Treasury, for example, instead of issuing a few trillion dollars in bills, decides to just issue a few trillion dollars in 10-year. That increase in supply, that has to have an impact on interest rates as well. I think the easiest way you could see this is to see just what's happening in the mortgage markets right now. So the Fed is telling you that I'm going to do aggressive quantitative tightening. In fact, maybe I'm going to sell some agency MBS. And you see agency MBS whining. You can see mortgage rates going above 4% now. And, you know, 10-year hasn't really changed. So, again, just buying and selling does have a big impact on, on, on these market rates. Yeah, but the market knows about what the Fed, I mean, the market is discounting supply and demand issues as well. And it's saying we don't care. There's other factors involved. As you said, Joseph, It's uh, these markets are very sophisticated and complex. There's an inc- intricate series of factors that go into it. And right now the market is saying, yeah, the Fed buys a little bit less MBS. Maybe that has an effect on the mortgage rate, but it isn't having an effect on the treasury for some reason. And I think the reason is because, as I said before, growth and inflation expectations have been diminishing for over the last year or so. And it really it's, you know, getting back to the, the, the whole issue about quantitative easing, too, is, that you know, the marketplace, it, it, the reason interest rates were going up as QE was introduced, for example, in the first very first QE in the United States in 2009, you know, interest rate, tre- long term treasury yields started to rise as soon as it was announced, because the market was saying you're talking about the market being wrong, Joseph, the market was saying, hey, maybe this stuff is going to work. We are pricing in higher growth and inflation expectations because we have no idea if this first U.S. QE is going to be effective. And so one of the reasons why uh, interest rates tend to or sometimes behave contrary to how it's supposed to go is because sometimes the market actually thinks the stuff will work and sometimes it thinks it doesn't. You know, a perfect example is the 2013 so-called taper tantrum which my podcast co-host Emil Kalinowski correctly says it was a taper celebration. That was the market saying, Ben Bernanke, you're right. We think maybe this recovery is actually happening. So we're going to sell safe and liquid instruments because why would we own safe and liquid instruments during a recovery scenario? But that didn't last because by September of 2013, it became clear, at least in the marketplace, that in the uh, the broader bond marketplace, that that wasn't happening, that the global economy wasn't recovering, was another false dawn, and there was another collateral squeeze. There was an emerging market, U.S. dollar crisis, all the, any number of things that made the market reevaluate its short-run position that was in in, the, in in tandem with what the Fed was thinking at the time. So there's you know these fluctuations again, like I said with the euro dollar curve, it's how the curve changes through time that actually tells us something important. In part, it is about what market participants think. And I think to your point about the euro dollar curve, how it changes, it, from, from my perspective, I think of it as, so for example, right now we see this slight inversion. I think of it as a lot of people basically buying that to hedge potential catastrophe. So one of the things that people, yes. re, people re, so it's not so much about what the Fed would do. It's that if you have a very large portfolio of illiquid assets, and then let's say shit hits the fan, 
then you're going to have to have something to hedge that. And there's not a lot of things you can hedge it that have the good liquidity and the reliable, let's say, negative correlation to risk. But one of them is euro dollars. So you can buy a whole bunch of euro dollars. If everything blows up, then you know, you're going to make money off that even if you lose money on your liquid assets. So there's that hedging perspective that, that affects the curve rather than just saying purely uh, impact of Fed policy, especially if you look at, let's say, vol is really high. If you go buy options and stuff like that, it's, it's an expensive way to hedge. And, yeah, but that's you know, the point. The market is hedging right now, and it's not right, just right. a little bit upside but, down. Then it's, it's not seriously it's upside down. So then it's not so much of a Fed perspective, but a hedging thing. So you can't really but get the, a clear what, what is the hedging actually telling us? The hedging is that at some point we expect the Fed not to hike as many rates and then have to lower them. So what are we hedging against? We're hedging against scenario that forces Jay Powell out of rate hikes and maybe into rate cuts. So that's really, I mean, if the no, market no, is that. agreeing and hedging against that scenario, shouldn't we pay attention to that? Because as you said, this is the deep, sophisticated, liquid marketplace where the, the where the balance of opinion has shifted toward needing to hedge. Again, that's very 2008-ish. It's very 2018-ish. It's telling us the market is sensing something right now. It's not inverted by a little bit. It was upside down by almost 30 basis points as of today, which is an enormous inversion. And that's telling you the market is hedging against some kind of scenario. We don't know exactly what it is because we, we don't have a crystal ball. We can't, we can't ask every trader and poll them what it is. But there is something out there or a combination of factors, Ukraine, oil, whatever, that the market is hedging against that says some point the Fed's got to stop hiking rates and maybe even turn around. I think that's something we should pay attention to. That's, that's a, fundamentally, a fundamentally valid position to take for the market to take. Uh, Randy's got a question in the, I just see a question in the comments. Randy asks, what's he saying that inverted 30 basis points? So the uh, Euro dollar futures curve and the red, the whites and the reds is, is relatively steep, although it's now inverted halfway through the reds, which means the front contracts are still pricing in rate hikes. At some point, the curves kinks and starts to go backwards against itself, which is an upside down inverted curve, which from the top, which is the June, 2023 contract to the bottom, which is about the June, 2025 the spread there is minus 30 basis points, let's say, just rounding it up. So that's an enormous inversion when, again, as we said before, the euro dollar futures curve should be upward sloping all the way from the front to back. So here we have it only upward sloping at the front, which is the market hedged at the front for imminent rate hikes, but hedged at the back against a scenario, as I said, where maybe the Fed has to stop hiking rates and even turn around. And the fact that it's upside down at all is a big warning and that it's upside down now by 30 basis points is an even bigger warning that the market is concerned about something big happening. Mm, yeah. So that would 30 basis points would be greater than one hike because of 25 basis points. So something yeah, would have I, to I, be wrong. Yeah. I don't think you don't take it literally. You yeah, never yeah, take yeah. these, these prices are not predictions. I forget who was who made this, this famous quote, Euro dollar futures are not predictions. Again, it's the curve shape and the relative shape. You shouldn't see any inversion at all, but if it's inverted a little bit, if it's flat or inverted a little bit, that should get your attention. When it's inverted a lot, that should tell you that the market is hedged against some bad scenario. And not just hedged, that nobody else is taking the other side of this. That's really the important point, that the majority opinion in this market is that something bad everyone agrees on is worth hedging because nobody's, he nobody's arbitraging this, this inversion away. So the market is expressing a fundamental view of how things are evolving in 2022 that are not inflationary, that are more likely to be pain, as you know, as Joseph said at the beginning, very likely to be a tough, tough time for uh, Jay Powell and his and his Confederates at the at the Federal Reserve.
<laughs> jo- Joseph, I want to put on a chart here. Uh, I think it's actually from Jim Bianco. It's a less so, uh, sexy version of the euro dollar curve, but it's, it's the 210 spread uh, with the blue line on the top being the, the difference between 10-year yield and the two-year yield for, for treasuries. And it's very close to 20 basis points. So uh, the yield curve is inverting. Normally, when it inverts, a sign of danger. The euro dollar curve having already inverted, um, as Jeff just said, how we we Jeff laid out his thinking very clearly why he thinks the yield curve is inverted. It's a sign of trouble. What is your explanation for why the yield curve has has inverted or is close to inverting? So no, I agree with Jeff about the euro dollar curve. That is people hedging. Although I think it has to do with in proportion to basically what you need to hedge, and so that kind of affects the death of the curve. Um, so death of the inversion. When you look at the tenure, though, it's a different part of the curve. It's not let's say inversion within the short-term interest rates within a couple of years. It's between what the two-year is and what the 10-year is. And I still am quite skeptical about the 10-year having a lot of economic content. Because when we talk about, let's say, the market knowing something about, let's say, economic conditions, just, just who are these people? Who are these people that are trading the 10-year? And we kind of know a whole lot of them, right? They are people who don't care about what's happening in the economy. They are people who have buying because they have to buy. And so... For me, when we just kind of know that, it, it's hard to say that these this has a lot of economic content in, in, into it. So um, I look at this 10-year thing and I just say central bank policy throughout the world is keeping a very uh, tight grip of actually keeping kind of a gravitational pull of where yields are and it's pulling them lower. I mean, if you look at the fundamentals, it's quite hard to see why, let's say, the 10-year would be at let's say less than 2% when you have, as we discussed earlier, basically trillions in issuance coming on forever. And you have this huge negative supply shock where we may potentially see persistently high commodity prices. So there's really no reason why you would expect inflation to be so low for the coming few, in the, for the coming years. Okay, so Joseph, I- was I, transitory. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, that's really the argument, the counter argument. So, Joseph, I get why the yellow line, that's been going up because the, the Fed is going to hike rates in anticipation of that. But why is the Federal Reserve's policy causing the green line, the 10-year note yield, to go down? It looks like it's been staying about the same. I, I what, what do you mean that it's going down? It's, it seems the 10-year seems to be pretty range-bound. Yeah, uh, yeah, but that's yeah. the point. It shouldn't be, right? If growth and inflation expectations are rising... I mean, I know we can have the fundamental view, but the 10 year, quote unquote, should be rising. If we're heading into an inflation, a structural inflationary environment, people who care about that would not be wanting to own 10 year U.S. Treasury safe and liquid instruments. You would be chasing some form of other nominal return. But that hasn't happened over an entire year period, regardless of the Fed's policy, because the first part of that year period, the Fed was heavily into quantitative easing, buying tons of bonds. And then in the middle, they transition, they're buying less bonds. So the Fed isn't into that market as much, yet the yield, the, the long-term yields are staying steady. In fact, the 30-year yield is less than it was a year ago, even though the Fed is no longer a big part of that marketplace. And yes, the market, I think, is well aware of the supply issue that the, that the federal government is going to continue to issue treasuries, bills, bonds, and notes for the foreseeable future. And yet, there is this persistent demand for safe and liquid safe and liquid assets. Yes, yes, exactly as you mentioned. There's a whole bunch of people in the market who want safe and liquid assets, who don't care about, let's say, 
having real return in the bond market. And so those people, they keep the bond market yields pretty low, even though fundamentals would indicate that they would be higher. So that is why when I look at this yield curve, I don't really see expectations for open inflation. I simply see supply and demand. You see a world where central banks around the world have kept yields very low and written a whole bunch of regulation forcing everyone to buy these safe and liquid assets, regardless of what they view uh, as a as the return being positive or negative. And what sort of regulation are you referring to there, Joseph? Uh, well, Basel three, right? There's Basel three, but not just that. So Basel three basically forces banks to buy a whole bunch of treasuries, which they are. But also if you're like say a pension fund or even a GSC or something like that, you have to buy liquid assets. And in practice, those are treasuries. And because you have this strong demand, like Jeff mentioned, you're buying it not because you're, you think that the world is going to be different in 10 years. You're buying that because basically that's all you can buy. Yeah, but HQL, HQLA requirements do not say you have to buy U.S. treasuries. In fact, there's a whole range of HQLA assets that people would probably shake their head at, including equities, for example. A new IPO could be an HQLA asset as long as it doesn't have, what is it, a 30% drawdown in its last 10-year history. So there is nothing that says insurance companies and pension funds and banks have to hold U.S. treasuries as HQLA. They can hold MBS. They can even hold euro bonds, for example, of very low quality credit. So they can express fundamental differences in the HQLA portfolios that they have. They're choosing to hold U.S. treasuries because that is dependably safe and liquid. And so I think they're expressing an opinion on safety and liquidity, whether or not it's specifically growth and inflation in that part of the market. They are ex expressing an opinion on safety and liquidity where they're saying, I want U.S. Treasuries because I'm not going to use my HQLA in, you know, um, third world uh, or emerging market euro bonds. So HQLA comes in different varieties. So the Treasury one is the highest quality. And you want to go below that. One step below that would be agency MBS. And that's what everyone holds, because if you go any below that, it's basically worthless. It won't help your regulatory metrics at all. So everyone in practice buys treasuries or agency MBS. Now, agency MBS, not directly a red product, spread product, but they're closely linked with treasuries. So if you kind of buy a whole bunch of agency MBS, it has an impact on treasury rates as well. But so just you can actually see this in the big balance sheet data. Um, everyone just buys treasuries and agency MBS. Yeah, I got it. Like, I think they need them for not just HQLA purposes, but also repo purposes. You have to have repo collateral in hand. And the fact that there's a shortage of it tells you a lot about what's going on in the monetary system, which is not good. It's fragile. It's deflationary over time. I think that's where it comes out in these long-term treasury yields. They're persistently low, not because of central bank policy, but because the monetary environment is conducive to owning safety and liquidity. If you're a bank, these are not investments, they're balance sheet tools. So yes, Joseph, you know, to an extent, I agree with you on that, that point, but I think it does express some kind of fundamental value in terms of growth and inflation expectations. Yeah, Je well, Jeff, I mean, as, they don't sorry. have anything else to buy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah just, why not though? That's the, that's the issue, right? Why do they, why aren't banks not lending? Why aren't banks doing something else? Why are they only holding safe and liquid assets like U.S. Treasury? Where are the other stuff? No, that's, that's part of the story. That's all they can buy for HKLA. <laughs> no, but if there was risk-adjusted risk opportunity here, 
they would own enough HQLA to satisfy regulations, but they would be expanding their operations and their balance sheets in all sorts of other directions. They're not. They're only owning the HQLA, not just to the not to just to, to their basal three markups and to avoid any GSIP surcharges. They're doing so because they're expressing an opinion about we don't want to expand our balance sheet for risky assets because the environment is not conducive for us to do so. So I, for I any number of banks have, have not been lending as much as they have, but there's a couple things to keep in mind. So post GFC, it's a lot more expensive to lend and post GFC because of QE, the longer term rates are a lot lower. So a lot of companies are simply just tapping the capital markets rather than going to the banks. Um, uh, something else to keep in mind is that the banks, we just have this huge kind of giveaway to, to the uh, business sector through the PPP loans. Uh, the PPP loans. And, you know, that's basically a trillion dollars of free money that we gave to the small businesses. And as lo those loans slowly um, roll off the bank's balance sheet as they're forgiven, it looks like the banks are lo loaning less, but actually they just kind of, they actually just kind of made a bunch of loans and they just kind of, they got canceled by the government. So that that's a little bit illusory there. Yeah, but, but I'm, the I'm talking more big picture going back to 2008. There is a clear change in trend in the financial right. crisis, a monetary change in trend where regardless of the short run fluctuations, the rate of change changed dramatically and lending has all but dried up. And we live in a nonlinear world. So rate of change matters most. So if, if, we're, if, if loans were growing at 10% pre-crisis, and I'm just picking the number out of the top of my head, and they're growing at 3% post-crisis, that's a massive change. That's Japanese style change, which is telling you banks are not willing to take on risk regardless of their HQLA requirements, regardless of Dodd-Frank, it started out right in 2007 and 2008 because they're looking at the risk-adjusted returns and doing risky behaviors, and they're saying it's not worth the risk. I'm just going to own safe and liquid assets. It satisfies regulations for me. I don't have to take any risk on my balance sheet. I don't have to take any liquidity risk, which was a lesson that many of the banks learned the hard way in the 2008 crisis. So when I'm talking about lending overall, I'm talking about the overall long-run environment, which absolutely changed in 2008, which begs the question, what was it in 2008 that made banks change their behavior? Part of it was obviously they were stupid and insane in what, what, what they were doing beforehand. And so, yeah, banks needed to be cleaned up some to some extent, but to the degree that they've done so in the post-crisis era, I think points to something else entirely. No, I agree. So in 2008, all the banks basically almost went bankrupt, right? You have... The U.S. government yeah. became a major shareholder, and let's, and I think City and Bank of America. It was absolutely right, Joseph. It was a so, wake-up call, right? I mean, you, I mean, I, you know, Bear Stearns was talked about as some some kind of success. When if you're if you're a Wall Street bank, you're in management, you're like, oh my God, Bear Stearns was not some kind of subprime mortgage peddler. There was a, they were one of the oldest brokerage firms on on the street. Very good reputation. They were not doing anything really wrong or really risky. They had extended. Yes, there was there was hidden leverage, but everybody had hidden leverage. They were overextended on the collateral side, which meant that, you know, tripod and repo, they couldn't keep up. But the rest of the banks got the message. If Bear Stearns can get taken out, we can all get taken out. And that was that was, to me, the structural change in bank behavior, therefore money for the entire post-crisis era. If, if I can just, you know. Definitely the least knowledgeable person on the stream, but I, I have read of, you know, a few books about 2008. Wasn't the problem uh, that Bear Stearns and the other banks were allowed to put 
triple a rated collateralized debt obligations on their balance sheet and basically from a balance sheet perspective treat them as if they were treasuries so you can ledger you can lever treasuries 30 to 1 oh you can lever triple a cdos uh 30 to 1 and as such you know a decline of i'm just gonna make numbers up of 15 percent in the cdos was greater than the entire equity capitalization so shareholders got wiped out uh jeff i'm curious do you think that the uh the regulations after the 2008 great financial crisis, such such as Basel III, do you think that that changed the game where, you know, they couldn't put the CDs out, they couldn't put the risky assets on, and it was just because of the regulations that they, they had to have treasuries? Like, did it, did it change it somewhat? Did, do you think that it changed it somewhat, but your main thing is the debt and the demographics? Or do you think it changed it really, it was completely ineffective? Well, I think, you know, the characteriza characterization of Bear Stearns was more immediate than their balance sheet uh, potential income losses. What ended Bear Stearns' run was the fact that that garbage that they used as high-quality assets in the repo market got revalued by their repo counterparties, particularly J.P. Morgan and Tri-Party Repo, who said, I used to give you 99 cents on the dollar for this. I'm only going to give you 90 cents on the dollar. Pay me $8 billion or so as a margin call on your collateral which Bear Stern said, I can't get it. Now, the same thing happened to Lehman Brothers in the fall of 2008, where Lehman Brothers had the same problem. Now, Lehman tried to do something a little different by transferring a lot of customer accounts to London and therefore re reusing and repledging customer accounts from the euro dollar uh, system outside the U.S. But by and large, it was the same thing. The system could not withstand the reevaluation of repo collateral that was at the deep center of the entire system. And so that part, along with the being reminded of the gross downside of being Bear Stearns or Lehman or AIG or Wachovia, all of these banks that got found themselves short of collateral, that started the snowball rolling where banks changed the way they operate. In fact, they changed the way they operate down to the down to the ground level. You know, it used to be you could get away with anything you wanted in the bank. You were working on an exotic desk, you had some idea for a derivative, you call up your manager, boom, done. In the post-crisis era, in the wake of Bear Stearns, these banks now have layers of risk risk management. They have compliance officers. They have accountants. They have lawyers. They have everybody looking at everything. Because why wouldn't they? <laughs> the risks are so huge. So what I would say is that Bear Stearns was the aha moment. And then in the post-crisis era, it was understandable what governments were doing because they had just been shocked into the worst monetary panic since the Great Depression. And of course, they wanted to tell people and reassure people that the banks were, we've cleaned it up. We fixed the problem. And so they added first Dodd-Frank and then Basel III that, you know, they, uh, Joseph said it already earlier, that made balance sheet capital and balance sheet capacity that much more ex expensive and that much more uh, scarce to, to be able to employ. So I think it was the combination of those things where the risk-adjusted behavior began the snowball, and then the regulations piled in afterward and just made it that much more difficult. I would simplify. It's just more costly to lend because of all this regulation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks. You know, I just spent, I just spent ten minutes. Of that. All right. Yeah, that's that's basically the narrative. Yeah. I, th I think yeah. we wrapped a nice bow on that. Let's now move on to one of our core questions, uh, which is does the Federal Reserve control the dollar system? I'm not talking about dollars purely within the US, but the global dollar system. Um, Jeff, you're, you're very well known for your view on this, but Joseph, how about you answer the question first? Because does the, does, the, uh, does the Federal Reserve control the dollar system? Well, the, the Fed has a, a lot of control. I mean, no, listen, the dollar system, as Jeff knows well, is, is a global system, right? You have a whole bunch of your dollars outside of the world, but the Fed has a lot of influence on the dollar in, in a couple of ways. One, of course, it's setting the short-term interest rates that has an influence 
on how much dollar credit is created. When you have, let's say, let's say the Fed were to raise interest rates to 100 percent. Well, you know, that's that's not going to be make dollars very attractive to borrow in. So that's going to limit or shrink how big the dollar system is and or you can make it very cheap. Another way the Fed has a lot of control is that it controls the dollar clearing system. So, for example, ultimately, no matter where you are in the world, when you do a dollar transaction, at some point it's settled on the books of the Federal Reserve through reserves. And so when the Fed wants to kick someone out of the dollar system like Iran, it would say, you banks, you can no longer clear any dollar payments if the party is following Iran. So then boom, you're frozen out of the dollar system. So it has, I mean, it has some control. It's not absolute. You can't control, for example, the quantity of dollars in the world. That as as we've learned through the euro dollar system since the 1980s, is not possible. It, it, it controls it in some aspects, but not completely. Jeff? I mean, that's kind of a vague thing, though. I mean, what does he mean by control? Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of weasel, wor weasel words here, Joseph. Like, there's a lot of gray area. I'll grant you that. But the way I look at the euro dollar system is, you know, some of the early literature, I think, really hit the nail on the head. You know, the first real exhaustive intergovernmental study was conducted by the BIS in 1964. Of course, they waited a decade for this to happen. But what they said was, you know, the line that kind of stuck with me when I first, when I first read it was that, this, these were long chains of interbank relationships. I forget the exact terminology. Interbank transactions, which extended the maturity of essentially what used to be deposit uh, deposit um, accounts into longer range, um, longer maturity uh, credit assets at the ultimate borrower. And what that meant, these long chains of transactions, which I think was better described by Robert Roos in 1984 when he said new networks of interbank relationships. And so to me, when I think of the euro dollar system, I think of it more like a computer system or a computer network because it's all these nodes of transactions. And in fact, in the SWIFT system, it's literally ad hoc corridors of uh, networks that get together, they form, they, they vanish, they, they continue to, to go and do business. So as a computerized, as almost a computer network, what we're really talking about isn't one bank transacting with another bank, it's one bank transacts with another bank and then another bank and then another bank and then another bank before it ultimately gets to the, the end credit user. And all of those steps in between create all sorts of potential downside, potential faults, potential problems, including when you get into things like repo collateral, derivatives, currency swaps, any number of ways in which these chains of liabilities or this web of currency or you know this web of computerized uh, ledger book entry accounting can go because let's 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 also remember the euro dollar was not something brand new is essentially an updated version of the old global correspondence system so if you have a bank in london that has a customer outside the united states and it wishes to convert its liability into sterling or some other currency it does not have to touch the us it can do, it can it can call up its old correspondent network and say we've been doing business since the 19th century I know you're good for dollars. Here we go. We can do a U.S. dollar transaction. And so that is still there underlying all of this, which has now give, been given a late 20th century, 21st century communications gloss, where we have all sorts of weird things like, you know, currency swaps and repo and term repo and all, you know, collateral transformation, collateral for collateral swaps and all sorts of things where these chains of interbank liabilities get further and further and further removed from the Federal Reserve and become more and more and more bank-centered. So if banks have a problem, 
down the road in these chains or these networks, this web of network of liabilities, it's very, very difficult for the Fed to do much about it. First of all, because the Fed has no jurisdiction whatsoever outside the U.S. boundary, which is why during the 2008 crisis and at several times since then, it has been forced into these overseas dollar swaps because it can't. It cannot transact with outside uh, banks outside the United States. So in my view, network, this web of interbank relationships, all the weird forms that they take, you know, from derivatives to everything else, you know, stuff that doesn't actually go on a bank's balance sheet. It goes down in the footnotes. All of this stuff happens in ways that the Fed, I think, is, in my opinion, is really ill-suited to handle. In some ways, it's, you know, it's understandable. It's not really their fault. This bank system evolved outside of the traditional boundaries of money. And it was sort of like, what do we do now? <laughs> it's, you know, we have all this stuff floating around the world and it's massive. Um, how do we plug back into it? I think there's, there's, so if you remember what you were just mentioning, Jeff, what happened during Bear Stearns, you kind of, there was all these collateral interbank relationships and it kind of all blew up. Now that, that, I think that fundamentally changed the system and through that brought Basel three, And one of, one of the things about the new system is that these interbank webs, they're a lot shorter and they're a lot smaller than they used to. What happened, I think, in the post-GFC world is that people realized, well, the regulators realized that having these interbank complexity isn't good because if a bank goes under, then all those claims on that bank become worthless. You have tremendous counterparty risk. So the change was made to say, hey, instead of having holding your liquidity at another bank, let's say as a Fed funds, or as a repo, you hold your liquidity at the Fed. And so what happened is that all those interbank claims kind of shifted towards claims on the Fed so that you have to hold lots of liquidity at the Fed now. And that that makes the system safer, but it also gives the Fed a bit more power to monitor what's happening. So let's say you do have that client, let's say outside in the outer realms of the dollar system, and they have a deposit at a foreign bank. When that client takes those dollars to pay someone else, that foreign bank who is going to hold their dollars at a bank in the US, who in turn has an account at the Fed. And so through this chain, when that foreign corporation pays someone, ultimately at the very highest level, there's going to be an impact on, uh, on the Fed's books because that's how the payment is settled. And so that's where the Fed exerts its influence over the dollars uh, clearing system. And one way you can see this is what happened with BNP. They were, they were caught to be processing payments for people to Iran in dollars, and boom, billion-dollar fine. That's that's a lot. And so that, that's that's kind of how the Fed intimidates people into obeying the rules. I, I do agree it's difficult to enforce, though, right? You have If you have a long enough chain, foreign bank, foreign bank, foreign client, shell company, it's really hard to know who's who is the ultimate counterparty, someone who's sanctioned. So that, that gives a lot of space for evasion. Um, but it also... Uh, which is actually part of the reason why these fines are so big because they're hard to enforce you got to really scare banks to not do this stuff so i think th there's there's i think there's both evasion difficult to control but for the parts that the fed does see though they, they do try to do something about it yeah joe i think i you know i agree with you i think these these uh these chains or this these webs of interbank transactions have narrowed a bit i think the the argument that you and i might have is whether they've narrowed sufficiently, I mean, sufficiently is probably not the right term, whether they've narrowed that much or that significantly. And I would argue that they haven't. Yes, they have narrowed. We see, you know, for example, collateral reuse and repledge ratios, at least what we can determine, have definitely shrunk since 2008, which means, 
I mean, like that could be a good thing because banks are doing less risky behavior and there's less risk of one one problem in the chain uh, kicking off a bunch of stuff down the road. But I still think there's enough of this intricate, intricate web out there that's long enough that it continues to keep the Federal Reserve remote, its influence at a limit, and that the banks are in the center of this. And that's why we continue to have these repeated dollar problems, regardless of the level of bank reserves, because I do believe, you know, I agree that the, 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 the interbank change or these the changes, the, whatever you want to call them, networks, they have shrunken a bit, but I don't think they've shrunken that much. But if you have, if the Fed is setting ready to do swap lines, though, do you think it could ever really be an issue if the Fed is just, you know, moment that sees something's wrong? Boom, unlimited swap lines. But that was what happened in 2008, right? We had right. unlimited swap lines away, though, in the right? middle of September. It, it didn't work. It didn't do anything. We still had a global dollar panic, the likes of which we haven't seen since the 1930s. And the swap lines had been initiated all the way back to December of 2007. Yeah, they were capped at, what was it, 25 or 50 billion? I forget the number. But still, that was a lot of money back in 2007. I remember hearing about the Fed doing this overseas swap line, everybody going, oh my God, this is huge. But as it <laughs> turned out, it wasn't huge. You know, it wasn't that big. It wasn't enough to stop what happened to Bear Stearns just a couple months later. It certainly wasn't enough to stop uh, Lehman Brothers. And remember, too, in, in, in September 2008, they didn't just uncap the swap lines, they expanded their counterparties to all sorts of other banks, not China for some reason, which boggles my mind to this day, but you know, we'll but, you know they expanded the swap lines everywhere and still we had massive panic for another six months or so. I think it's, a, for, for me, I think of it as a distinction between liquidity and solvency. I think if you give swap lines, you can paper over liquidity, but we had kind of a solvency issue then. So, but in March, 2020, I think it was purely liquidity. And so you have everything going away quite quickly. Markets rebounding again, basis narrowing, and then dollar after spiking going back a bit to normal. So, but I think back in 2007, 2008, that was definitely more of a solvency issue. And, you know, you just can't, you can't throw money out of that. Well, that's, a, you know, that's to me, it's the repo issue, the collateral issue that doesn't get solved by swap lines. And so if we have a collateral shortage situation where we have a bunch of collateral that's being revalued, again, March 2020 is another example. Not only did we have junk bonds, junk corporates, you had euro bond spreads blowing out. At the same time, you had problems in off-the-run treasuries, too, which became non-negotiable in repo. Overseas swap lines don't do much to stop that collateral problem, which is why the Fed came in. At least they'll tell you why the Fed came in and bought so many treasuries because they thought they had to fix the they had to fix the treasury market when the issue wasn't treasury, it was repo. It was repo collateral in the same respect. So in my view, 2008, like March 2020, was more liquidity. And it just it was liquidity in ways that the Federal Reserve is not suited. And that includes, by the way, it wasn't just swap. I remember that they had the primary dealer credit facility that that, that they no. that came into being in what was it, April 2008 after Bear Stearns, which if you read the transcripts and throughout 2008, policymakers were very sanguine about the ability of the primary dealer dealer credit facility to to negotiate any any further issues in collateral just a month before Lehman and the entire repo market broke down in uh, September and October 2008. So to me, it's it's more about the liquidity angle in things that are not related to the traditional monetary types, repo, collateral derivatives, those kinds of balance sheet tools, too. I think everything broke, but this FX offs <laughs> yeah. and there's one thing fixed part of it. And the Fed purchasing fixed the collateral problem. And that was a really big problem in March, that collateral. That was basically, um, I think that was something we've never really seen before. Yeah, I think but, that much we can probably, everything. <laughs> it was, yeah. There was not much really to go right at that time. It was amazing, really, yeah. Yeah.
Jeff, I want to turn to a question. Does cutting rate interest rates, does that cause inflation? And does hiking interest rates, does that stop inflation? Legitimate monetary inflation? I hate that term. Legitimate monetary inflation? No, I think, you know, um, cutting interest rates or, or rising interest rates are supposed to signal those things because that's really what monetary policy is about, signaling to consumers and businesses. We're cutting rates. You should think that's helpful and therefore you should do a bunch of things because, if you believe it's accommodative, you'll act as if it is. You know, if you think it's inflationary, then you'll start spending, investing today before prices go up. And so the the theory is it should be, but in practice, it doesn't seem to work out so well that in that direction, either direction, whether it's cutting rates or you know raising. I mean, think about Alan Greenspan's infamous conundrum in the middle two thousands, where you know he was hiking rates, yet the the entire housing bubble and the global economic uh, system continued to go along regardless of those rate hikes. Yeah, I agree. I'm hiking rates. I, it's hard to see how that impacts the real economy. Let's say going zero to 25 basis points, zero to 1%. Does that really affect anyone? It's it, it has a big effect on the financial markets, I think. But I mean, just in real life, it's hard seeing hard to see how that matters. And, and Joseph, in this instance, I think you may have a, a view that's even more uh, Jeff Snyder and than, than something that Jeff Snyder has, which is Joseph, you've got a piece out. Venting terms. Now? Yeah, you've got you've got a, a, a view that uh, hiking interest rates could actually cause inflation because it stimulates stimulates bank lending. Could you explain that theory? I just you know, run it run it by Jeff, and then I want to hear Jeff's take on it. Sure. The basic theory is this: so a bank basically, you know, it creates credit, as you know. Would you have higher interest rates? It makes it more attractive to lend, right? So it makes it more attractive to create credit. If you had the in the pre-GFC world, the bank would manage its liabilities in the wholesale market. So if it wanted to create credit and needed more liabilities, it could go and it could borrow, let's say, in a CD or some or a Fed fund or something like that. In the in the current context, it really doesn't need to do that. If you look at what the banks are, if you hear what the banks are saying on their quarterly calls or look at their balance sheets, they have tremendous amounts of retail deposits. They basically don't access the wholesale funding markets anymore. And retail deposits are zero interest rate basically forever. At least that's what I've been getting in my checking account for the past 20 years. So, <laughs> so basically when you raise rates, it's just you just widen their lending margins. So that I think makes it more attractive to lend. And there's other aspects to this as well. For example, basically you get more IOR income. And where does the Fed get its IOR? Well, you know, it just kind of just gives it to the banks. Makes it up Same. out of thin air. Yeah, you know it does. I, I agree with you. Joseph. I mean, that's the sound. I mean, the idea that rate cuts stimulate lending and credit, that never made sense to me either. Because, you know, you have to look at it not from the perspective of the borrower or not just the perspective of the borrower. You've got to look at it from the perspective of the loan issuer. If you're making it less less of a profitability or no profit potential to, to make a loan, would we really be surprised if banks don't want to do it? You know, yes, 100%. maybe more people want to borrow, but banks don't want to lend. So 100%. Yeah, in theory, higher rates should stimulate borrowing. Where I would disagree is that I think banks are balance sheet constraints and other factors. But if anything might work out of all of the possibilities that were given today, that would probably be the most likely in my view, because it's at least thinking about banking and lending and credit in the right way, which you know, for the longest time, it's been so upside down in, in the way we're taught about how to how to evaluate credit and money and banking and all that thing. So why not? Right. You know, it'd be insane. Let's say the Fed starts hiking rates and then inflation just gets higher. Right. That'd be so funny. And then it becomes a spiral. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, Jeff, uh, Joseph very ably described to me the portfolio channel effect, the rebalancing effect of quantitative easing. In other words, uh, well, and, and hiking rates. If, if the Federal Reserve hikes rates, that destroys value on the short end of the curve. So people who own three-month, one-year bills, they are worth less. So therefore, their portfolio is worth less. So now they're going to sell 10-year bonds, and now they're going to sell some credit. Now they're going to sell some stocks. And sort of the portfolio losses spiral down through the asset universe. Do you th- uh, what's your thought on that on that theory? And you know, do you see it in practice? No, I think it, theoretically that's that's sort of the point. But in, in practice, it never seems to happen, which is why interest rates always stay low. Because in a, in the obviously in the T bill market, there's use to T bills that is not not necessarily tied to investment characteristics. Again, repo collateral, the best of the best of the best. That's why we see, for example, the four and eight week T bill rates up until recently, you know, yielding less than the RRP because there was use and premiums and uh, utility for T-bills above and beyond their nominal investment characteristics. So even as interest rates go higher, there's still those reasons to own those things. And I don't think it leads to a cascading effect where as bonds are revalued in price, it necessarily destroys you know, leverage, for lack of a better term, because there are other characteristics involved in owning those assets. So, you know, if in theory, that's what's supposed to happen. But in practice, we never seem to get that far. I think, so this is my big thesis, what I watch in the markets right now. I watch the 10-year selling off even, even when the stock market is selling off. To me, that, that's kind of a huge, huge red flag. I look at the 10-year selling off because, it sh- because I think it should, because you have huge, huge commodity shock coming. You're going to have higher inflation. Well, whatever, that's a fundamental view, and I don't like looking, having fundamental views. But what I see that, though, is that People who own 10-year, they're losing money there. That's supposed to be their hedge. They're losing money on the stock market. That means they're going to have to puke. So all things equal, what the Fed is doing when, when it's tightening monetary policy, in my view, is that it's just kind of making people who hold treasuries lose money, which forces them to sell equities. And so that, that I think, is the mechanism, in, in, my, in my view, as to why um, this is not good for the stock market. For risk assets, uh, I, I agree with Jeff that treasuries definitely have value as collateral, and that has to be priced in as well. It is hard though to know exactly what that price is, but yes. you know many people have to hold that to put for derivatives, let's say as collateral. Yeah, thanks to the or- Fed, right? I mean, come on, let's let's get some collateral type of measures and data out there. Let's 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 start exploring these repo spaces. Do you, do you think that the do you think that the Fed government basically writes rules just to make sure that everyone has to buy their debt? Because <laughs> I said I, I definitely got that sense in some of the regs that I see. Uh, for example, you have these um, GSEs. It goes, Joseph, it goes all the way back to Basel One, right? Let's prioritize sovereign government bonds and give them the lowest risk weighting so that the incentive is so huge to buy whatever government sell forever forward. You know, my, my sense of the public sector is these people, you know, they're they're not that's smart. So uh, on the one on the one hand, I'm like, they can't possibly have thought of this. But on the other hand, it seems like that's what they're doing. So another way, maybe they really just do believe that, you know, government very safe, you must buy your assets for your own good, right? Maybe they just drink the Kool-Aid, I don't know. But it does seem to be like that's how they, they're shaping the system. Yeah, risk parity and you know, sort of buying stocks and buying bonds as a hedge. Uh, the 6440 portfolio, which is the unlevered version, a version of that, that really yeah. is a benchmark of portfolio theory. 
and it really has been challenged. I think this has been one of the worst years of the past two months uh, for 6040 uh, in a very long time. We got talking about collateral, Jeff, that you brought up. We got a question from Harold who asks, can you talk about gold being used as collateral in repo as Zoltan Posar has been talking about? Jeff, how about you take that one? Well, I, you know, to me, gold is sort of the collateral of last resort in a pinch, but it's still hard to mobilize because you have to find willing counterparties. And at times that can be very difficult. I'm thinking specifically of 2010, 2011, a lot of European banks were trying to use their stores of unencumbered or unallocated gold. And they had to swap it with the BIS because they couldn't find counterparties in size. So gold as a is a collateral hedge of ledger is theoretical possible, but at times gold market, uh, I don't even know where you would do where you to get that, right? I mean, are you gonna have someone with an armored truck drive by just by you know the gold? <laughs> yeah. Um, so can you but, unload two, 20 tons uh, just uh, on a moment's notice? We'll just get some bars and uh, just we'll just ship just, them off to some stuff is really heavy. But about I, I think something about Zoltan, I think I think what he's saying though is that it's not Luca, definitely, like Jeff mentioned, but you know, in a world where your reserves held somewhere else could just disappear, gold doesn't do that. It doesn't disappear. And that's that's a nice thing to have, right? So what's the point of having all these super liquid things that might disappear on you one day? Right? It's useless. Rather have this thing that sure, not very liquid, but at least it's still there. It's really your priorities, right? I mean, you look at yeah. the Russian example. The Russians decided that for the longest time they wanted to own lots of gold because of, as Joseph just said, it's 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 counterparty risk free. Yes. However, yeah. it's not very liquid, and so that's why in March of 2020, the Russians decided their priorities had changed, and so they stopped buying gold because they were prioritizing the liquid assets on their port reserve portfolio rather than to continue with the store of value. Now, I think they've changed their mind recently. <laughs> now they're going back to say, hey, maybe we need to prioritize counterparty risk again. But it's really, that's that's the tug of war. That's the tug of war that every financial institution or government institution finds itself in in this environment is store value versus medium of exchange. Which one do you have to prioritize? And it's it's not very, it's not often easy to do so when you have these momentous problems, these momentous swings, volatility, that's always, uh, it always seems to be there. No, that that's definitely true. So yeah, I just want to ask uh, what your view is on the Fed essentially canceling you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of reserves that the, the Central Bank of Russia thought as money. I want to put up a chart that Joseph, I know you've seen before. The left is the, on the left is the composition of the Russian Central Bank's assets. Blue is securities, so that's European government bonds, Chinese government bonds, Treasury, U.S. Treasuries, and the like. Uh, green is the deposits with other central banks. Yellow is gold. Uh, gray is other deposits. What has been, as of now, you know, 5 p.m. On, on Tuesday, March 8th, what does the Central Bank of Russia has access to and what does it not? Jeff, how about you go first? And then I want to get your thoughts too, Joseph. Well, they have the access to certain deposits held abroad with other banks. We don't know exactly who, obviously, and I don't think we ever will. I think they have certain they have tremendous counterparty um, dependent, dependable counterparties in certain places around the world, whether it's China, the UAE, maybe Switzerland and others, other uh, locations. So they do have access to certain correspondent assets in those places. But I think what you saw, especially in December, was a huge shift into deposits with other official institutions, whether it be friendly central banks. Maybe not the IMF or the BIS, but definitely uh, other counterparty central banks that, I mean, 
let's face it, Vladimir Putin knew what was going to happen in February. And so just in the reserve composition change, they were getting prepared for being uh, being sanctioned. And I think a lot of those assets were shifted around. They sold a bunch of securities or at least they maybe moved a bunch to Belgium for for for, uh, for certain reasons. So they, they definitely changed their reserve uh, mix, their portfolio allocations to raise the level of dependable liquidity in the, their entire reserve portfolio, anticipating what was going to happen. Now, that doesn't mean they're completely insulated from sanctions or they're completely insulated from the downside. It just shows that a little bit of pre-planning that likely put a bunch of these reserves, at least in what they may think is uh, dependable places. Hmm. Joseph, I want to tee you up here because I know you wrote a piece called Breaking the System, where you use the phrase financial WMDs, weapons of mass destruction, and talking about the uh, essentially canceling of bank deposits of the Central Bank of Russia, you talked about how you know, future reserve managers will have to realize that money in a bank can go poof, poof, any time, anytime, regardless of deposit insurance, and that a much larger gold allocation is necessary as a safeguard uh, against the existential risks posed by financial sanctions. So is this a, a you know, financial WMD moment? And you know, why, why is this a financial WMD? I would back up and say, not just what happened, what happened to Russia, but look what happened to, in Canada, right? You have dissenting viewpoints. You know what? You don't get a bank account. <laughs> so that, that, that's, that's, that's just not right. So it's not just it's not right. It's not smart. You have, you, you're creating suspicion of the banking system. You're creating risk in assets where people thought were risk-free and they're going to have to adjust their behavior accordingly. So if you're a sovereign and you look at what happened to, uh, to Russia, that sends you a very clear message. All these reserves that I have, they're not, they might not be there if I don't listen to what these other guys are saying. If you think back to World War II, once everyone saw nuclear weapons, you know they, they suddenly felt insecure because maybe the U.S. can come and take me over. Not just the Soviet Union at the time, but U.S. allies too. Nobody wants to be at the mercy of someone else. And so you saw a global scramble for, for nuclear weapons, even among close U.S. allies. I think you'll see the same thing today. I mean, let's say um, you're China, let's say, or even if you're India, maybe you have some territorial aspirations that are very, very important to you, but not, not approved um, by, by, by the U.S. What are you going to do? Well, you got to be able, if you want to realize your aspirations, you got to be able to make sure that you can survive these sanctions. You look at what happened to Russia. The one good thing that Russia did was they had a whole bunch of gold and that's protecting them. That's helping them a lot. So you kind of have to have a lot more gold as well. So what happened today, I think, when you have uh, people breaking confidence in the system, they're going to look for alternatives outside of the system. And I think traditionally for central banks, at least, that's gold. Mm. Uh, uh, well, you, got, you two have been very generous with your time. We're running on you know, nearly 80 minutes. Uh, I guess my final question that I'd love your thoughts on are how many rate hikes do you think the Federal Reserve will be able to do uh, by December 2020, by, by, by New Year's, let's say? You know, what, what's your base case? Let's, Jeff, I'll start with you. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't even know how to answer that because I think the situation is really so fluid that it's, it's kind of up in the air. And there's, and you know, again, some of it's just markets pricing, but as well, it's, you know, just, there's so many big things happening. We have, 
potentially a global growth slowdown that that be, that materialized before we even got to oil prices going toward the moon, which creates all any number of scenarios where the Fed has to say, well, we've got political pressure to hike, so we got to start hiking, but how far can we get before we have to stop? And so, you know, I'm very reluctant to put a number on it because I think it could be anywhere between, it really could be between one and four or five. I mean, you think about the example in December of 2015, where Janet Yellen's Fed thought they were going to lift off right away, and then they kept putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. And then they did one in 20, December 2015, and then there wasn't another one for an entire year because the situation had changed. And I think there's there's much more political pressure and much more immediate, immediacy to them starting in, what is it, nine days from now or whatever it is, six, eight days from now. They're going to start in eight days, but I, you know, I, I'm very reluctant to put a number on it at this point. I think that uh, you know I, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna take a view that's a bit out of line with the market. I think they're going to hike super aggressively, and I think they're basically staring at the greatest disaster uh, the Fed has ever seen in, in in some time. You you're entering this rate hike cycle with seven percent CPI, and you just have this tremendous tremendous negative shock. You have oil, multi multi year highs. You got copper, aluminum, everything going to the moon. So this seven percent CPI it's going to get much worse. And so you're going to have to get ahead of that very aggressively. So I think that I think that the Fed is going to be surprisingly hawkish at this next meeting. And I know that growth is slowing, and I know maybe we might be in an economic, global economic recession because of this. But this level of inflation, it's just comically awful, and it's going to get worse. So I think they have to do something. Mm. And eventually, of course, it'll crumple down and we'll have um, commodity prices come down a lot when we crash. But uh, <laughs> before, before that happens, before that happens, there's going to be an aggressive messaging at least. Hmm. Great. Well, that's really uh, interesting. I guess what you're saying is because of the commodity price, yeah, it, it may harbor a recession. It, you know, often presages a recession, commodity price appreciation. But in the mean term, in the midterm, it's going to mean a huge amount of inflation. I mean, just oil at $130. What's, what's that going to, going to lead? Well, uh, Joseph, Jeff, it's been an absolute pleasure to bring you two together, to have you exchange your views. You know, for people who are coming at this debate, wanting to see a clash of the, you know, clash of the minds, I think I'm, you know, they, it was a very respectful discussion. It definitely was not a, you know, a angry debate at all. So I was really glad that you, you know, could exchange your views in uh, such a nice way. And it's, it sounds like you guys agreed on more than uh, people thought. Yeah, imagine that, right? We have a nice sane conversation. We find out, yeah, we maybe we disagree on some big issues, but boy, I bet I bet there's a lot we do agree on. It's no, it was a pleasure. Thank you, for, thank you for the invitation, Jack and Joseph. It was a pleasure meeting you and discussing things too. And you know, we'll, let's let's do it again sometime. Absolutely, yeah. it's great meeting you, and thanks so much for putting this together, Jack. It was great. Would love that. Um, thank you, everyone, for watching. Please make sure to subscribe to the BlockWorks YouTube channel. Um, subscribe to Joseph Guy, uh, Joseph Wang on Twitter at FedGuy12. Subscribe to uh, Jeff Snyder at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP. And Jeff, by the way, the reason that we agreed, uh, you and Jeff Joseph agreed so much is because I sort of held back. I asked the easy question. Next time, I'm going to ask the question such as, <laughs> are, are, ba are, ba yes. are bank reserves money? And Joseph's going to say yes. And you're going to be like, ah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, uh, right. thank you both, and thank you, everyone, for watching. Right. Bye. Bye.